Welcome back to the Bible Brush Up podcast and to today's episode from the 90 Days of Promise series, for which we are going through the book of Judges. And recently we covered a few of the Judges, Othniel and Ehud, but today we're going to look at some others. And as we look at them, I want to explore three different categories that I think are thematically woven throughout the book of Judges. Uh, the first one is God's use of irregulars. He doesn't always use the people that we would expect him to or the people that we would have naturally gravitated towards if we had been Jewish people living in the land in that day. Uh, but God doesn't do things our way. And so we're going to look at some of the characters uh, through that lens. Uh, the second thing is the growing depravity of Israel. I've talked about this in a previous episode, that Israel is spiraling into a darker and darker place, both spiritually and morally. Um, and then also we're going to talk about disunity. Uh, disunity as the people of Israel seem to be becoming more and more disconnected as this spiritual digression unfolds throughout the book of Judges. So uh, let's dive right in. Um, Othniel and Ehud are sort of the outliers in this discussion of irregulars because both of these men are pretty qualified and would have fit the mold of the people's choosing. And maybe God starts out that way. Um, but then as the people of Israel get further and further into their sinful state, he begins to uh, show himself even more mightily through these irregulars. Othniel was the younger brother of Caleb, and Caleb had demonstrated his worth in battle. Othniel had already demonstrated that he was a warrior. Um, still, he comes from a place that's not the most well-known and not the biggest metropolis area of Israel. But uh, in Ehud, we discussed him being left-handed, but that left-handed was not necessarily um, to be interpreted primarily as him being left-handed and not able to use his right hand, but more like ambidextrous and that he could use both. So that made him even more qualified. Uh, but once we get past him, we get to a guy named Shamgar, who we know nothing about, but he is credited with killing hundreds of Philistines with an ox goad. Now, that's only slightly less impressive than Samson, who's going to end up killing Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey, but still to kill 600 Philistines clad in iron armor with a pointy stick, which is basically what a goad was as it was used to move along cattle who were pulling farm equipment. That's impressive, and it's not expected. It's not the weapon of choosing. Anytime the Bible mentions iron, and especially like iron chariots, it's usually used in a similar way that we would reference weapons of mass destruction in our day. It's the big threat, and God points it out in the Word anytime the Israelites go up against people who have iron instruments of warfare, because that means that they are outgunned. They should not win this battle. And yet here's a man who does it with a pointy stick. And so this is an irregular use of God. He chooses someone who's not equipped for battle, and he puts him up against a villainous foe and wins the battle. Uh, the next one is Deborah. Deborah is a woman. So right away, that should draw our attention and should remind us that um, it's not the power of the person that's going to win. It's actually God who wins the battle. And so he raises up Deborah, and Deborah is judging Israel at the time, and people are bringing their issues to her. And a man named Barak comes, and he is called upon to go and to fight and to throw off the oppressors um, during that time period. And Deborah makes a statement that if she goes with him, then the battle will be considered a victory through the hands of a woman. And while at the time of reading that, we might assume that the woman is Deborah, we actually come to find out that that is Jael, not Deborah herself. Jael, the one who puts the tent spike through the temple of Sisera. And it seems that this whole section is laden with irony um, because we have a woman victor over the enemies of God's people. And we have a 
woman who is vocalizing her concern for Sisera from the um, territory of the enemy. She is waiting for her son to come back from battle with all the spoil. And one of the things she's looking for that she's wanting to rejoice over is her son taking the wives of all the people, all the Israelites that he has killed, and there'll be two wombs for him, uh, meaning that they're going to rape and pillage once they go into Israel. And that's what the mother of Sisera is expecting and rejoicing over, but her son's not coming back. And it's because the very women that she was hoping he would pillage and rape are the ones that have actually killed her son. And it was supposed to be two wombs for every man. And this man does encounter two women in this story, Deborah, the judge, who is leading the battle, and Jael, who puts a spike through his head. So the irony is there, and it shows that God is sovereign over these things and that he is actually the one in control. And he can deliver Israel from anyone with anything, anybody, anytime. And the next one we will look at is Gideon. And Gideon, there are several things we could talk about. He's not from a prestigious place. He doesn't have a background that would be desirable. Um, the Ephraimites even approach him at the end. And the conversation between them exposes how lowly his position is. However, one of the other things that we see that's irregular about Gideon is when he goes to battle, he's commanded to shave off a good portion of his troops. He had around 30,000 and 20,000 of them go home because of how scared they are. And God had commanded that for him to not take so many because they will start to declare victory by their own hand. They will think that they actually accomplished this military victory. And so 20,000 go home, 10,000 remain. But God says, nope, that's still too many. You still might take credit for this. And so at this point, he has them do this drinking evaluation where if they drink like a dog, then they're part of the military troop that's going to go to battle. And if they drink like a sophisticated person, then they're going to go home. So God is not only using Gideon and a really, really greatly reduced military troop, he's also using those who drink like dogs. So he's basically taking dogs to war and winning the war. And so this is irregular. This is not the way that anybody else would have done it. Uh, but God does it this way, and he gets the victory. Uh, the next one is Tola, who is the son of Pua, the son of Dodo. I think that one speaks for itself. Uh, the only thing I'll bring out other than the most ridiculous names in the Bible is that this person, it says they are from Isaacar, but they're living in Ephraim and they die in Ephraim. And so this is a foreigner who is not from their own homeland, um, and somehow they rise to prominence and power, and they are a judge for God. And there's not much else known about this person except how ridiculously awful their names are. Uh, Jair is the next one, 30 sons on 30 donkeys. Not much known about that person, and we probably won't talk about all these minor ones that not a lot said about them. Um, however, there are a couple of them that bring up donkeys, uh, and it might be worth just thinking through. Why in the world would donkeys be brought up? Well, the donkeys reference peace. Horses go to battle, donkeys are used during times of peace, and also we see through the New Testament reading and portions of Zechariah that donkeys are associated with the Messiah, and they are uh, oftentimes used for kings. In fact, uh, in the Song of Deborah, I believe, a mention of donkeys being used by the monarchy of the day was referenced there. And so we see just that this group of people, um, this family is 
expanding. They are numerous, and they have donkeys. And I think one of the reasons maybe this is put here is kind of to foreshadow what's to come. We are getting closer and closer to the rise of the kingdom, uh, where a king is going to be chosen. And it could be that Judges is setting the tone um, to kind of give us a a glimpse of the choices that Israel had of who to choose as king, because you had these 30 sons on these 30 donkeys and their sons. And sometimes there's mention yeah, of grandsons and great-grandsons. And, and these families would have been well-known. They would have been prosperous. They had their donkeys. They had everything that you would want for your next king. But that's not what God was looking for. God was looking for something inside of someone. And what he found was righteousness and a humble heart in the person of David. We'll talk about him later on. But next, let's move to Jephthah. Jephthah is the son of a prostitute, and his shame is so great that his own family drives him out. So it would not surprise us that Israel would not choose this person to lead them into military victory against a foe. And yet God chooses Jephthah and uses him as a judge to deliver the Israelites. Uh, and then we get to Samson. Samson is the last one. We'll probably maybe talk more about him, uh, just specifically about his life. But uh, Samson comes from a barren couple who can't have children. So all of those, just taking a quick look at them, just a cursory glance, it shows you that these are not the people that would have normally uh, arisen to the seat of judge um, just based on human merit and their strong background. Some of them have very questionable backgrounds, and they have uh, a lack of some of the sophisticated uh, attributes that you would look for in a leader, especially a military leader. With that being said, though, we go back through all those judges, and you look at the times, and every one of those, they've gone into a point of uh, oppression from foreign enemies because they've done evil in the sight of the Lord, and they continue to do evil in the sight of the Lord. It's a repeated theme, um, but some of the evil shows up even in the stories, um, just like Jephthah, who's the son of a prostitute. Well, why was there a son of a prostitute in the land? Um, well, because obviously the people are being drawn and enticed by the sin of prostitution. That's probably all over the land. It could be Canaanite prostitution. It could be Israeli prostitution. We don't know. But um, the fact is people are using these prostitutes and um, they are falling deeper into sin. Gideon has his own failures. When we read the story of Gideon at the end of his vi military victory, he collects gold earrings and crafts an ephod, which basically becomes an idol. It says the people of Israel hoard after it, and it causes the home of Gideon to fall apart. So we see the sinfulness there even in the story of military victory and God's own judge is the culprit of this sinfulness. And one of the primary sins I think we should look at as we trace the growing depravity of Israel is that sin of disunity that we talked about earlier. And disunity is seen um, throughout many of these stories of these judges. Uh, but one thing that popped off the page as I read through uh, several of these chapters this week is that Ephraim really likes to fight. They want to be a part of the battle. Even if we go back to last episode, Ehud, after he shoved the dagger into Eglon, um, he goes into the hill country of Ephraim, blows a trumpet, and Israelites gather for battle. When we get to the story of Deborah, she lists the people who would go to battle and the people who would not go to battle. And one of the people who would go to battle is Ephraim. They were ready for battle. Um, it, some of the other um, areas that did not go to battle are mentioned later on in Judges, and often they will have to fight their own battles, and some of the Judges even come from those locations. But... Um, you kind of see already there's a disunity. Um, one of the things I see in the disunity is the description of places, because when they came into Israel, 
they were Israel and they were tribes. You didn't get a lot of reference to particular cities, and there certainly wasn't the crowning of kings within individual cities, but we get to a point where that's happening, where they try to make Gideon the king over um, their people, and Gideon says, I will not be the king over you, the Lord will rule over you, which is a good response, um, but it actually makes me wonder what happened there. He does have a son named Abimelech, and Abimelech means my father is king, and so I don't know if he turned back on that. He does immediately ask for tribute, uh, like a king would ask for when he takes those golden rings and crafts that ephod, which becomes the downfall of his home and the downfall of the Israelites around him. Um, and so there's so many questions I have in my mind. Like, did he actually say no to being a king and give lip service to God, but then actually acted like a king? Uh, why is his son's name Abimelech? And then Abimelech is crowned king. And so we have these kings in these little independent cities and villages, but uh, no national king yet. Um, but it leads one to wonder how disunified are these people at this point? One city rises against another, fights against another, one uh, nation against a, a, another tribe, one tribe against another tribe. This is going on within Israel, even just across simple borderlines like a river or mountain range. Um, and so we don't have this unified picture of Israel like we kind of expect to have at this point, especially after them being led for so long under the leadership of Moses and Joshua. Uh, another story to recollect is with Gideon. Gideon goes, and after he wins his battle, he's confronted by who? The Ephraimites, because they want to fight. And they said, why didn't you call us to fight? And Gideon said, well, when the time was right, you did fight. You got to kill the bad guy. Uh, and so he, he kind of neutralizes this contention with diplomacy. But it is certainly uh, jumping off the page for me that it's the Ephraimites who are mad about not getting to fight in the battle. And once again, we see them rise up uh, as military aggressors in the story of Jephthah in chapter 12 of Judges. Same type of thing. They come to him, they're like, why didn't you call us to arms? And Jephthah responds, well, I did call you at a certain point, and you didn't come. And so I had to go, and I just had to fight, put my own life on the line, and took care of business. And uh, so Ephraimites are mad once again, and there even is a little explanation of the rift between the Gileadites and the Ephraimites. And if anybody ever tried to cross the Jordan, and um, they asked them how to say a certain word in Hebrew, Shibboleth, and they didn't put that H sound in there, and they accidentally said Sibboleth, it would expose that they were from the, the other side of the river uh, because they would have had a different dialect, and they wouldn't pronounce it right, and so they would kill that person. So we have this battle going on between two Israelite civilizations, and yet uh, they're supposed to both be God's people and God's land, um, we also see a division of how people call out to God and talk to God. Um, before, there was always this going to God at Shiloh or wherever the Ark of the Covenant was and making the request to God about the next step in the battle, and where they should go, who they should fight, how they should do it. Uh, we don't see much of that. God does continue to speak to people through these judges, but it's not through the proper order that he had established earlier on. And so they're just all over the page, and the division is getting worse and worse, and we're going to see it get to a climax here at the end of the book. We're going to stop there for today, though, and we'll pick up next time on the Bible Brush Up podcast.